Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you, O Lord, for your holy and precious word. We thank you, O Lord, for the comfort that your word brings. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that it brings. We thank you, O Lord, for the grace. We thank you, O Lord, that you're pleased to teach us and to guide us, to lead us. And we ask, O Lord, that you would do just that this morning, that, Lord, we would leave changed by your words that lord you would not only give us understanding of these things that have been written for our benefit but lord you would change us through them so lord we praise you in jesus precious name amen this morning we come to the second part of our christmas series in the psalms and the, the objective of this series is really joy in Christ. That's the objective. It's, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a scheme that's, at least in my mind, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks it'll become clear in your mind as well, but that's what we're marching towards. Uh, the last installment of this series will be uh, in Psalm 98, and that'll be a subject, will be joy in Christ. But each... Uh, each message is an installment towards that end. Last week we looked at one of the things that inhibits joy in Christ during this holiday season, and that is holiday depression. And uh, uh, lots of people, lots of people uh, suffer from that. Uh, Friday night, uh, someone shared with me that they, uh, they would love to be excited about the holidays, but the holidays bring a lot of depression to them time and time again, and I recommended last week's sermon to them. Um, so holiday depression. We looked at Psalm 77 last week, and we found the psalmist crying from his despair at the beginning of that psalm, and, and we really looked at what did the psalmist do? Uh, what course did the psalmist take? You'll recall he cried out to the Lord, and as he cried out to the Lord, at one point in all of this, he began to think about what he knew about the goodness of God. And he began to systematically deal with his doubts uh, based on that information. And uh, you'll recall that last week I mentioned a couple of times that uh, sometimes we read a psalm like that and we think that the psalmists probably come out of this uh, maybe instantly or come out of this very quick, quickly or come out of this uh, maybe within the scope of an hour or two, but I don't think we need to understand the psalm that way. In fact, in, uh, generally speaking, it, takes, it can take many weeks uh, uh, to, to come out of uh, these kinds of things. But it begins, 
in that psalm with the psalmist systematically doubting uh, his doubts with the information that he knows about the Lord. And from there, uh, his, his, his face now, his concentration, uh, his heart is now turned away from himself and he's beginning to look uh, in the direction of the Lord. And as he begins to do that, he begins to systematically look at the promises, the great promises of God. Uh, and as he looks at the promises, as he looks at how God has fulfilled those promises in the past and looked at the faithfulness of God in the past, his heart is encouraged. And uh, the darkness, the, 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 there becomes a crack in that darkness. And the, the rays of divine light begin to shine in the dark place. And uh, the psalmist is encouraged and he gains strength. Uh, that, that's how the psalmist leads us in those, through those times. Now this week we look at another common problem that inhibits us from true biblical joy and that's the lack of godly fear. The lack of godly fear. If you look at verse 4 of our psalm that we just read, you'll read these words that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In fact, the, the, the title of the sermon this morning is Forgiven to Fear. Uh, kind of sounds strange, doesn't it? Forgiven to fear. Uh, we think it should be like forgiven to be freed or forgiven to love or forgiven to anything but, but fear. Forgiven to fear. Well, that's what the verse says, isn't it? With you there is forgiveness that what? You may be feared. Well, this seemingly strange idea can be settled at once by the gospel, and this psalm preaches the gospel, as I hope we will see here in a few moments. Let's take a look. In our psalm, we find well, what we could call two great pillars of truth that are set side by side, if you will. If you look at verse 3 and verses 4, starting with verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's the first great pillar of truth that we're going to look at this morning. The second one in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, let's take a look at both of these. Let's start with the first one, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, someone might be wondering, okay, what are iniquities? Um, many a Bible study have been asked that question. People say, I'm going to ask the question, yeah, what, what is an iniquity? Uh, iniquities, we can think of it simply as a sin. Uh, iniquity is a lack of righteousness, if you will, a want of righteousness, wickedness. The New Webster's World Dictionary says an iniquity is a wicked, unjust, or unrighteous act. It is a wicked, unjust, or unrighteous act. Now, something should be borne in mind here. The psalmist is certainly a righteous man. I, I don't know who the psalmist is. But I think it's pretty safe to say he's a holy man. Not, not many of us get to write the words that would later be incorporated in the canon of Scripture. 
He's a holy and righteous man. Yet he includes himself in the number of those who cannot stand before the Lord. In fact, he's trembling at the thoughts of having to stand before the Lord and his iniquities. He's a holy and righteous man, and he is trembling. Over what? Over his sin. As I was thinking about a way to try to explain this, I, the, I kept coming to Isaiah 6. That's why we read Isaiah 6 a, a few minutes ago. Because in Isaiah 6, we have such a graphic picture of what's going on here. You know, uh, the, the prophet tells us that he has this vision of the Lord sitting upon his throne. He writes, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe uh, filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now here's a picture of the Lord enthroned upon his throne and Isaiah tells us that the train of his robe uh, fills the entire temple. What is the significance of that? Now, in ancient times, nobles and monarchs would wear these robes, and there was a, a train that was attached to the robe, uh, very similar to the modern wedding dress, if you will. Uh, not all wedding dresses have this, but many wedding dresses have this train. And uh, it's inappropriate for uh, anyone else who's part of the uh, bridal party to have a train that's as long as the bride's. Because it is the bride's day. It is her hour. Uh, when, when these uh, uh, dresses are all put together, the, the, the bridesmaids may have uh, trains behind their uh, dresses, but uh, th they won't be as long or as ornate as that of the bride herself. Why? Because there's symbolism to these. The longer the train and the more ornate the train is, the higher the status. And in ancient times, nobles would wear these trains, and by the length of their train, that, uh, that symbolized the authority, the, uh, the power, the status of the one who, who wore it. Now, in the case of Isaiah's vision, he sees the Lord enthroned. And we're told that the, that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. Now, what's being emphasized there? The absolute majesty of Almighty God. That's what's in view there. And then we're told about these strange creatures that are attending to the Lord, these seraphim, they're, uh, these six-winged creatures. We're told that uh, with two wings they covered their face, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they flew. Uh, I think we can understand the two wings they're flying with the easiest. What, are the, what, is the, what is the purpose of the two wings that cover their face and the two wings that cover their, their feet? Well, the two wings that cover their faces, they, they, they're in the immediate presence of Almighty God. 
And with those two wings, they cover their face from the glory of Almighty God. And with the other two wings, they cover their feet. And their feet are symbolic. Our feet are, in many, uh, in many cases, our feet are, are, are symbolic that we're creatures, that we've been created by God, that we are the creatures, and He is the Creator. We see the same thing with the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, if you will. Uh, when Moses is given instructions to, to build the Ark of the Covenant. The, the, the Ark is built, and then the, the, the lid is made, and on top of the lid are these seraphim. And they're facing one another, and they're looking down, and their wings are outstretched. Now, why are they looking down? Because the psalmist tells us, and many passages of Scripture tell us, that the Lord is upon the seraphim. He's upon them. They're looking down away from the Lord. So here are these holy creatures covering their face, covering their feet, and they're proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The emphasis here is clear the absolute holiness of God. The absolute holiness of God. So we have a picture here of the absolute majesty and holiness of God. Now let's say a word about Isaiah. Isaiah is a righteous man. As I've said many times, if Isaiah lived in Chester or Liverpool, uh, we would, he would have a reputation. We would know him as a holy and righteous man. Now when he has this vision and he sees these things, what effect does it have on him? What does he say? He cries out, Woe is me. Why? Because he is now brought before the straight edge of God's majesty and holy perfection. And what does that serve to do? It reveals his unholiness. He cries out, woe is me. Now, the old King James translation does such a wonderful job of bringing that out. It says, woe is me, for I am undone. In other words, I am coming apart here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. Uh, Isaiah is literally coming apart at the seams. Now, if we go back to our psalm, back to verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I think we get the picture now, don't we? Who could stand? Not the psalmist, not the righteous psalmist, not the righteous prophet, not Isaiah. But guess what? Where's that leave you and me? Notice... What Isaiah doesn't say, he doesn't say, man, I'm only human here. I know I'm off the mark, but I'm only human. Notice he doesn't say that. Notice the psalmist doesn't bring anything. He doesn't talk about that. Quite frankly, that phrase should never be on any of our lips as believers in Christ Jesus. Why would we want to blame our problems on the fact that we're human? Wasn't Jesus, isn't Jesus human? 
We need to blame our, facts, our, our problems on the fact that we're fallen. That phrase, I'm only human, is a, is a subterfuge. It's a scheme. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a scheme that, that we throw out there in order to kind of hide the issue. We hide behind that. And it's actually hypocritical because as we're hiding behind that, we're trying to make ourselves out to be a little better than we are. There's another little phrase that the psalmist doesn't bring up. He doesn't bring up where everyone's doing it. You know, everybody's doing it. I know I'm not perfect, but neither is anyone else. It isn't going to matter. No, instead he says, listen, I'm a man of unclean lips, and so is everybody else. He doesn't say, uh, everybody's doing it. I'm a man of unclean lips, and, I'm, you know, and everybody's a man of unclean No. That's not what he says at all. So the first pillar that we have here in our psalm is this absolute majesty and holiness of Almighty God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, the second pillar is found in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And here the psalmist recognizes another important characteristic of Almighty God, and that is His mercy, His abundant mercy. And we get a picture of this. There's many places in the Scriptures we could go to get a picture of this. I, I, thought, I thought about Moses. You know, there's a time in his ministry uh, where he is, he's leading Israel, and uh, it's a time when Israel has, has just fashioned the, the calf and has been caught in that spiritual adultery and idolatry that, that, they take place while, that, that takes place while Moses is up on the mountain. And at one point through all of that, Moses, realizing he's called to lead uh, Israel, he, he says to God, Lord, you must go with me if I'm to do this. Please show me your glory. And the Lord is pleased to do this, but the Lord, he adds in this one thing. He says, okay, uh, I'll, I'll show you my glory, Moses, but uh, there's one little comment here that, that, um, that you need to keep in mind. And this comment is worthy of our notice for our current discussion. He says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And that goes back to the first pillar I just talked about. The holy majesty and holiness of Almighty God. But God nevertheless shows himself to be merciful. And he says, sure, Moses, I, I will show you my, my glory. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to veil your face as I go past you. And I'm going to remove... Uh, that veil so that you can, you can see me as I'm passing by. It's very loving. God protects his child as he puts him in that cleft of that rock and he covers his eyes so that he doesn't see anything that would be harmful to him. And then God passes by him and as he passes by him, he says these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, many of you have heard these verses many times, haven't you? 
many times. How is God revealing Himself here? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's a God of steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He is willing to forgive, but He will not clear the guilty. He's a God of justice. Quite amazing. There's another place where we could go and see another glimpse of the abundant mercy of Almighty God. See if you recognize these words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That holy, majestic, almighty God and His mercy, His abundant mercy combined and with us. Through the virgin birth, this holy and almighty God steps into time, space, and history and the person of Jesus Christ to make good on His promise to redeem His people, to make us His people and to be our God. Isn't that incredible? Now we see we have two pillars here. They must always be kept together. The absolute majesty of God and the abundant mercy of God. These two things must always be put together. Now, let's look at these a little closer. We have them both out here. We've got them out. Let's, let's analyze them a little further. The gospel of Jesus is really all about these two pillars, if you will. The absolute holiness and majesty of God and the abundant mercy of God. What effect does the absolute majesty and holiness of God have on us as we're uh, given a glimpse of it? It has the effect of conviction, doesn't it? What happens to Isaiah when he sees the vision? He becomes convicted, undoubtedly convicted, more so than he'd ever been in his life. I'm sure he was convicted of his sins prior to that revelation. I know he was afterwards. His cry gives it up, doesn't it? Woe is me. Woe is me. We often call this the bad news of the gospel. You know, as long as we're comparing ourselves to each other, I mean, we can kid ourselves into believing that, you know, we're fit for heaven, that we're good to go. As long as we're comparing ourselves to each other. But um, uh, that's not how this is going to work, is it? We compare ourselves to each other. We can kid ourselves and say, you know, I haven't done anything really, really awful. I haven't, you know, I haven't done anything really, really awful bad. And when this life's over, the Lord's going to say, come on, welcome. Welcome into my kingdom. Come on into my kingdom. But one glimpse of the majesty and holiness of God reveals it all, doesn't it? That possibly, it reveals that we are unfit for heaven left to ourselves, completely unfit for heaven. 
Heaven would not be heaven for us anyway if we were left to ourselves. You follow me? Heaven wouldn't really be heaven anyways if we were left to ourselves. Because our heart's desire are not set on heavenly things. Our hearts and our desires are set on worldly things. In its zeal to appeal to the masses, American evangelism has really stripped the gospel of its bad news. Skipping over the bad news and going right to the good news. Now, what happens when we do that? What happens is there's no conviction. There's no conviction. It's the bad news that causes the conviction. See, without the bad news, we don't really realize we need a Savior, at least not like... We we don't come to the realization that we need Him as much as we do without the bad news. The bad news teaches us that something needs to be done. And if we skip the bad news, then the the whole gospel falls flat. It falls completely flat. It's none other than what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, forgiveness, without conviction doesn't change anybody. It doesn't change us at all. Now, hold on to that thought just for a moment while we look at the other pillar. The, the majesty of God produces conviction, yes, but what's the mercy of God produce? What's the mercy of God produce? As long as it isn't separated from the majesty of God, it produces repentance. What does Isaiah do when he sees the majesty of God? He immediately repents. He immediately repents. What does the mercy of God, what effect does it have? Well, it shows that God is merciful, that He is willing to, he's willing to, to offer us mercy. He's, he's willing, to, he's willing to, uh, to receive us. That creates repentance. Who's going to repent to a God that if you don't believe God is merciful, you're not going to repent, you're going to run. You're going to flee. You're going to hightail it out of there and get out of there as fast as you can. The psalmist, he realizes that God is merciful. We see in verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you. Why is he crying? Well, verses 3 and 4 give it up. He's crying because he's looking at his iniquities. He's looking at his sin. He realizes that he can't stand before the majesty and holiness of God. So he's crying out of the depths of that, of that understanding. Verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. For what? For mercy. He knows God to be merciful. He knows God to be merciful. And what is ensued here is repentance. And upon repentance is forgiveness, sweet forgiveness, forgiveness that loves, forgiveness that serves, forgiveness that fears. Forgiveness that fears. Verse 4, Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be what? You may be feared. What is this fear? It's love. 
It's reverential adoration. It's this longing to please the Lord because He's been so good to you. Fear is, godly fear is the mark of a changed person. You see, without the majesty of God and the holiness of God, there will be no fear. Because we don't really ever come to realize just what we have been saved from. We don't ever come to realize what Jesus has really done for us. The psalmist trembles before the holiness and majesty of God and cries for mercy and he gets it. Isaiah trembles before the holiness and majesty of God and he gets mercy. Jesus goes before the holiness and majesty of God and he gets justice. It's unbelievable the terror that he must have underwent for us and the horrible pain that he must have suffered. I'm not talking about the nail holes. I'm talking about the emotional, psychological, and spiritual anguish that, in, that caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do it? Because he loves the Father. Why did he do it? Because he loves you and me. And in him we can have forgiveness that he may be feared. See, a psalmist all those years ago is preaching the gospel, isn't he? He's preaching the gospel. This holiday season, let us meet, meditate deeply, deeply upon these two pillars of truth that are so fundamental to the gospel. If you're sharing the gospel and you don't share both of these pillars, you're not sharing the gospel. You skip the bad news, you're not sharing the gospel. Skip the bad news, the good news is going to fall flat. We all like to skip the bad news. I like to do it too, actually. It's not a lot of fun sharing the bad news. I'd like to share good news. Who wants to give, be a bearer of bad news? But you see, without the bad news, the good news falls flat. But once we understand the bad news, the good news is so good that it changes our hearts, doesn't it? So as we think about finding joy in Christ, we can't have joy in Christ without a holy and reverential fear of Christ. And one of the reasons we don't find joy in Christ is because we're lacking the fear. And I would submit that one of the reasons that we're lacking the fear is because no one's, everybody's piped it down about the bad news. Let's not do that. Meditate that in your mind. And it'll bring you to joy. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we can't even comprehend what you've done for us. We can't even begin to imagine everything that you've done for us. And I don't believe that when we're in heaven, Lord, that we're, 
I don't know how long, if we will ever fully understand what you have done for us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you press these things again to our hearts, oh, Lord, and give us understanding of your holy and absolute majesty and holiness. And that you would also press upon us, Lord, your abundant mercy that's available by faith. By crying out for the mercy that you're offering us in Christ Jesus and trusting in what Jesus has done in our place that we can be brought into a right relationship with you, into a proper relationship, that we can truly be reconciled with you. Oh Lord, I pray that each of us would be forgiven so that we may fear. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.